Elroy, know me, knowing my long-windedness, just gave me uh, six or seven verses, so uh, normally I take four hours to get through six or seven. I'm going to finish with verse 12 because verse 12 is what leads into verse 13. So um, uh, actually, let me just, it, it feels like eating with unwashed hands not to pray. We have prayed, so, but I'm just going to pray another short prayer. So, Lord, these are your words, and I pray that you would uh, speak them into our lives and produce the fruit that there is from them, that we might learn by your Spirit and that you would be gracious to us uh, in the way that you have always been gracious to, to us. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. So that you might not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, waiting having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their dispute, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So I uh, sometimes wonder why the author of Hebrews wrote the letter. Uh, What was it and what are the... context under which it was written. And one of the great gifts to us uh, in this letter is that we have no idea. And I think that that's great because if you have to read commentaries on this letter, every commentary on letters in the New Testament starts out with who wrote it, why they wrote it, what was going on. And we don't know, except from what's in the letter, which is great. Because the introduction to Galatians has over 50 pages on whether it was North or South Galatia praise the Lord that we have a letter that is anonymous, but that is from God to us. The, but the author has written it for a purpose, and he does keep repeating this purpose, what it is. And this is his method of encouragement. And so I want to understand better what, how it is that he came to give us this encouragement. We know that the people are facing persecution. We know that they've been plundered, their lives have been, um, there's been great upheaval. They may have lost their homes. They've been beaten. Uh, They've they've suffered a great deal. And they're very tempted to go back to this Roman authorized religion of Judaism. And so the author is is trying to encourage them not to return to this uh, state-sanctioned religion, but to stay with what they've learned of the truth and grace of God from the work of Christ. Don't give up on Christ. He's done the true work of which all of that is just a shadow. And so um, so what the author did was study the Old Testament. Well, that was the Bible, wasn't it? And so he studied the Bible. He sat down and began to read it. And he was struck by, and the 
Spirit directed him to Psalm 110 and said, where it says, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And wait a minute, uh, there's a, that's interesting. How is it that a son is sworn by an oath, I swear, uh, so uh, uh, that he will be a priest forever? Um, by myself I have sworn it. And so what the reader must have done was look back and said, okay, well, where does God swear in the Old Testament? You know what it means to swear? It's not a common, uh, in our circles, swear is often a bad word, but an oath is uh, sworn before a judge or a jury uh, to tell the truth, or I had to swear an oath to become a citizen of your very fine, um, but let's face it, fallen country. Um, but I have escaped as a as the scripture says, as a, as a refugee, as a fugitive. Um, I am legally here, but I did swear allegiance to the queen, as um, I'm shocked to tell you that. Okay, so, <laughs> um, so where does God swear in the Old Testament, and why? I mean, after all, this is the one who said, let there be light, and there's light. He says it, and it is true. He doesn't lie. So he always tells the truth. So if he just says, there will be bread, there's going to be bread. He doesn't say, I swear. He doesn't have to do that. So, so the uh, writer is reading his devotions. He's in his devotions, like you're going to be in your devotions this week. And he's in his devotions pondering some of these stories and accounts in the Old Testament. And this passage here is taken directly from, he quotes, uh, what God says to Abraham. And he says it in Genesis 22. So we have to understand this passage in the context of Genesis 22. So that's where we're going to turn to next. So go ahead and uh, flip back to uh, Genesis 22. Remembering that this is written, uh, written um, 1,500 years before Christ. And we are reading a text that was written now 2,000 years ago. So uh, probably one of the first things I, uh, I, I notice about this text is that verse 14 is written in, in very archaic language. And so to give it to you directly the way that it's said, uh, it is surely, or it's a, an oath, so he says, I swear, uh, I will bless you, or blessing, I will bless you, multiplying, I will multiply you. Now, there's another place where God swore with such language or stated such language. This is the way that ancient Hebrews affirm something is say, blessing I will bless, multiplying I will multiply. If you eat of the tree of the garden, dying you shall die. And we translate that, uh, it's translated very accurately, in the day you eat of it you shall die. But, but the idiom in the Hebrew language is dying you shall die. And this is, uh, of course, very chilling for us because we live in a world where those words are still true. But there is another promise, and this promise reverses that curse. And that's why we're going to look at what it is in the context where God swore with an oath that blessing he would bless and multiplying he would multiply. So turn to Genesis 22, and let me just catch you up on history here. In Genesis 12 we are told that God had said to Abraham, get up from Ur of the Chaldees and go. Now, Abraham hadn't jumped on that right away. Uh, he did move. Uh, they went to Haran uh, with his father-in-law, and they died. He passed away there. Terah died. 
sorry, Teres's father. Uh, and then he moves on into the land of Canaan. And uh, in chapter 15, uh, let me review my notes here. In chapter 15, he says, okay, I, he's 75 when he leaves Ur. Now he's getting up in years. Now he's 85. And um, God swears to him a covenant that, and, and uh, we talked about that the last time you might have remembered seeing my face. I was talking about the covenant uh, that was made to Abraham where God alone was the one who passed through the uh, offering of the animals. That's Genesis 15. And so there's a covenant. God has made a covenant that he would bless him and that he would multiply him and that his seed in, of all, in all the earth, the nations of the earth will bless themselves in your seed. And then, uh, then we move on. And in, verse, uh, in chapter 17, he renews the covenant. And, and then Isaac is born. Now, 75 when he left Ur, 85 when they had Ishmael. Now he's 100. And he's had this child. And everyone's rejoicing, and he's sent off all of the children and everything. That's his heir. Uh, Sarah has told him, Ishmael can't be in the house. This is the one. This is the, your son, your beloved son. Now, I'm told that the very first time in the Bible the word love is used is in this verse. I take that from someone else. I don't read Hebrew. But uh, as we read this, um, you will hear uh, this father and son. And so now Abraham is well over 100. It's very likely by the language used to describe uh, uh, Isaac that he is well past. He's not a, a young child. He's a fully adult man. Uh, and so when it says lad, that's someone between 17 and 30. So I think you can easily picture a 30-year-old man and his 130-year-old grandfather. Sorry, father. <laughs> I myself am a grandfather who apparently forgets things. So, so the Lord tests Abraham. Now, um, we know that God knows our hearts. And as the text describes, what it's describing is what we learn from this. So after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, <clears throat> and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What a shocking request. And uh, we know, and let me just put you at ease, <laughs> uh, Abraham knew that God would somehow bring his child to life if he did kill him. We know that from Hebrews. We also know from his obedience that he trusted God that God would do good. But it would be shocking to have to offer your very own son. Why on earth God would do this? This is such a strange passage in Genesis. The passage on Melchizedek, which we'll come to next week, is, God willing, is, um, is also just a very odd moment where all of a sudden somebody shows up who's a priest of the Most High God. Well, this is a similar, just very strange moment. What is it that God is doing and so he says, um, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham 
rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, and Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. And wa- watch what he does. He, you, if, you, if you know this story, you know how compelling this moment is that he lays the wood on his son's back. And his son carries the wood. Now, who cares about the wood? But you can see this pattern of a father offering his son uh, with carrying the cross. So Isaac carries uh, the cross, uh, sorry, the wood. Um, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and um, the knife. So they went both of them in agreement. They went both of them in agreement together. Isaac didn't know quite what was going on, but he knew he was going to do what was pleasing to his father. And Isaac said to his father, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God God will provide himself the lamb. This phrase is how the mountain gets named. In the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And so here he says uh, an expression of faith. Now, if you've ever heard somebody sort of um, reject Abraham or talk about his weakness in faith, um, I encourage you to uh, ask them, first of all, if they're 75 years old. Okay, so if they're not 75 and they haven't left everything, they shouldn't be saying that someone else is not a person of faith. The second is, there are times when to our eyes and because of the grace of God, we see that Abraham does struggle in his faith, and we do uh, have that privilege of knowing that there are people who don't live perfect lives who God calls blessed, who God provides uh, a a better account and a fuller uh, witness of who they really are. And so uh, he says, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son, maybe speaking better than he knows. So they went, both of them together, and when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I'm sure every time you read this passage, you recognize the son's willingness to obey and do what his father asks. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. God grant that when our name is called, we uh, say, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So we have a demonstration very early on of substitutionary sacrifice. That the theology that we have, the privilege that we have of knowing what Christianity truly teaches is a very rich and powerful religion. If I had to choose one, I would have picked this one 
only it chose me. But the more I walk in it, the more amazing the truths and the power of the grace of God demonstrated throughout human history compels me to this, uh, to this trust in Christ that we've been called to. And this substitution is exactly what Christ would do for us on a mount in Moriah. Uh, 1,500 years uh, after this. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said today, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, by tradition, um, and we know that Mount Moriah is in the region where Mount Zion and the Temple Mount are. And so the Jewish heritage is that the temple is built on the same place where Abraham was to offer Isaac. Uh, And that uh, you can read about when David stops the plague and buys a threshing floor that it's on this mountain. That's where the temple is then, Solomon's temple is built. And uh, it's a beautiful picture then of the sacrificial offering that would make the basis for or or foundation of our trust. But there's another view. And the other view is that there are several mountains there. And one of the mountains is north of Moriah, and it's called Golgotha. And that (coughs) it's very possible that instead of this place, that Isaac was offered on the very place where Jesus would uh, be crucified for us so that um, what God is demonstrating, a father willing to offer his son in sacrifice would be fulfilled, not just in type and in picture, but a fulfillment of everything promised to reverse the dying we shall die and instead blessing we shall be blessed. And so the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn. Now this is the passage that the writer in Hebrews is telling us about. And he's telling us, by quoting this passage, pay attention what happens here. Read this carefully. When you read your devotions, it's not just something to do. It's a very great truth. Now if you have a people who are desperate for their lives, threatened with what they're doing, threatened by following Christ, lest uh, they be beaten, that their homes be taken, that they, um, that whatever it is, that they be held up to public shame. How can you encourage them? And the <clears throat> New Testament tells us it's through the encouragement of the scriptures. So the author of Hebrews reads this and he sees something just so puzzling. By myself, I have sworn God is making an oath. Why would God make an oath? We know that he tells the truth and that when he says things, they happen. So why is he swearing an oath? And he declares, because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely, and then the words again, blessing, I will bless you, multiplying, I will multiply, and then it's your seed. Now we know, and the New Testament will describe to us that the seed is Jesus. The offspring is singular, and it is singular here. We can use seed to mean uh, one little seed or a bucket of seed or batch. I'm not a farmer. Okay, so a bunch of seed. Um, but uh, in, in the um, 
Sorry, I guess that admission didn't shock you that I'm not a farmer. Um, so that he will bless the seed. So what the author is doing, now of course it's true, he did multiply Abraham. And so what the author of Hebrews is, I'll point out this difference in just a minute, but um, uh, this promise then comes from a God who cannot lie and who has already made a covenant and made a promise and now swears an oath. Now, one of the great things about uh, God swearing an oath is that this is, and just to be uh, make sure I don't misquote it, uh, in Psalm 110, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, think for a moment what this means. David who wrote this psalm, is reading the account in Genesis and reads about Melchizedek. He also reads that God swore to Abraham that he would bless and multiply his seed. And now through a son who is a priest, he gives this promise. A people tempted to go back to temple worship. Now think about what temple worship would have meant for them. All of their childhood memories all of the trips to Jerusalem three times a year, everything their lives, the fabric of their emotional, cultural lives was around what was happening at the temple. And it was a place where they worshipped the living God. And these scriptures were taught. And so as they had that as a heritage, to recognize what is it that all has happened now is come to fulfillment in Christ. And now we leave that behind. That temple mount within a few years of the writing of this letter will be flattened. Not one stone, and these were giant stones, I'm sure you know. Uh, these were stones that would fill this area. That's one stone in the temple of Herod's temple. And Jesus had prophesied not one stone left upon another. The temple mount would be scraped clean. Now, how do you get people to move great stones like that? Why would they do it? What a bother. No one would accept this prophecy. It's just silly. What, Jesus must have been misheard. But there's gold in the temple. And accidentally, when the Romans are besieging Jerusalem in 70 AD, the temple catches on fire. Express orders, do not set this building on fire. And it gets set on fire. And the gold melts into the rock. So in order to get all the gold out, you have to take it down. And that's what they do. Their own greed actually fulfills the promise of Christ. But what is going to happen? That's going to happen for our listeners. For the people to whom this letter is written, that will happen because it must happen in judgment for a generation that rejected Christ. And <clears throat> the author is very concerned that you, that these believers not be part of the generation that rejects the work of Christ, that they hold faithful and that they stay strong in, the tr in trusting God. And so uh, reflecting that David read this account and wrote this psalm inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then our author read this passage and realized it's the only true hope I can give you because the place you want to go for hope is about to be torn down. 
There is only one hope that will last as an anchor for your soul, and that is Christ, who instead of what happened in picture on the Temple Mount, fulfilled in the true heavenly temple the, the purposes of God. Now, I could, you'll be thankful uh, that I won't, uh, but I could then say what Jesus is doing is fulfilling the Leviticus 16 Day of Atonement. But that privilege lies for Elroy in the future and a hope that we can look to, although you're not at all forbidden from reading Leviticus 16 and about the Day of Atonement. Um, but uh, let me make sure that I've covered what points. Um, that's why our, uh, the writer of our passage is quoting uh, this, that God swore. So uh, during, his, during his devotions, obviously, this author was able to come up with something very uh, valuable to offer to, um, to his readers. This passage is filled with, it's hard to see necessarily, but this passage is filled with legal language. So it's not just that by myself I have sworn or, or um, I swear that blessing I will bless you. He uses throughout um, the uh, first the surely is actually an oath that says by my life or um, I won't try to pronounce it. So, uh, But it solemnizes an oath. So whenever we say, you know, God help me or whatever it is that we say in an oath, uh, that that is how God is solemnizing and making sure this oath. Uh, the oath here is a legal language that would have been used for, I promise that I am going to pay back the loan that you gave me. Then it also says that, um, I'm, I'm back in Hebrews 6, and... Um, it says that God, let me, let me find the English, um, guaranteed it with an oath. And that word for guarantee, if you think about how you guarantee something or I would guarantee something, we usually set something aside for surety. Like my house stands as surety for my mortgage so that if for whatever reason I uh, walk away from the mortgage, they will own the house. Um, right, Tom? Yeah, so... Um, Jesus uh, is the guarantee of this new covenant. It is the person and work of Christ himself that's promised. It's hinted at here in this legal language. Uh, the formula as confirmation is used for a legal guarantee in a transaction. Show more convincingly and um, above all dispute are also legal terms. Um, and then unchangeable, the unchangeable nature of his will is the idea of using an irrevocable clause in a contract. You can't break this clause without breaking the entire contract. Now, why is God using legal language? Why are the writer using legal language? Why did God use legal language in, the, in uh, Genesis 22? And I, I have to say, it wasn't one of the great privileges of, of getting to study ahead of time to talk about this stuff is that I'm, I'm just like so humbled that I read this. I didn't know this. So I don't know if you noticed, but the whole point of Genesis 22 is us. The author says it's for us who were to inherit the promise. I, I, I just, how can it say that? But, but, but that's what it says. It says, um, so that 
by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have, we who have fled for refuge, he's talking about the oath in Genesis 22, and the assurance is for we who have fled as fugitives, as people without a home, as people who identify with Abraham leaving family, house, everything, to go to this country that he would not possess, not even any, any of it. Sarah, who passes away in um, Genesis 23, will be the first time he owns even a small corner of this land. But the promise is that to, his, um, to the, the heirs of the promise, um, all of this would, the whole land would, would be possessed. So we would have, we might have strong encouragement and uh, not just, I don't know if there's any, hey, that's nice or have a nice day, but this is the kind of encouragement that establishes you and makes you powerful. And so this strong encouragement who, for those who hold fast to the hope set before us, that hope set before us is the same hope, sorry, the same joy set before him uh, uh, that Christ uh, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. So he entered then this, um, I guess um, I didn't do the, a good thing in telling you the outline. Uh, so here's the third point in the outline. If um, Elroy were here, he would have outlined it for you. Uh, but the third point is um, that we have this hope, sure, as an anchor through the veil. And that's um, talking about Jesus passing into the very presence of God and giving us this hope. And we know this passage. We love this passage. Jesus as a forerunner, uh, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And I'm going to leave that for someone else to exposit because um, it'll come up, believe me. Um, but on the Day of Atonement, just a quick picture, uh, that just to remind you, on the Day of Atonement, the lucky guy who chose to wa- offer for the one once a year entering into the presence of God. They tied a rope to his foot, I'm told, in case he died in the presence of God. They could drag the body out without offending God. That's not the job description I'm looking for. Um, But he brought, uh, he carried into the inner place beyond the curtain, which is the very presence of God, um, that we would have this hope to lay hold of as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus did that for our sake so that we would have access to the presence of God. And I'll just remind you that on the cross, when he says it is finished, this curtain in the Herod's temple, which is uh, two handbreadths thick, is torn from top to bottom. And it says that God will now have, depends on how you want to interpret it, but we have access to God, and now God would pour out his spirit to have access to us so that he could bring us safely through uh, on this journey. So that's the hope that we have uh, for us because, uh, because Jesus, the high priest, uh, made that available to us. Now, if you, are th- if you think about then what they lost, what this generation would lose in all of their memories, all of their trips to the temple as children, all of the songs that they sang together, what they would have instead was a more enduring. Uh, I'm not a fisherman. Uh, my father loved the ocean and uh, once compelled me, 
out of love for me, to go fishing with him. And so I went out on this boat early in the morning. Er, I'm not a morning person. And there were giant swells that day. And the swells would go from, you know, to the top of there and then down to the, okay, and all day long. And I just lost it all morning long. I just puked over the side of the boat, feeding the fish, are we? And um, so when I hear that we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, I want a foundation, okay? (laughs) I don't want to be in the waters up and down. I don't want to be, but you know what? Our lives are in troubled waters, and we are refugees who have fled for hope. We are fugitives who have fled for hope to Christ. And so we are looking for a city that has foundations. But in the ancient world, the anchor was a symbol for something solid that you could rely on. But there is still this time of intermediate time. We have laid hold of the hope set before us, but it still lies before us. So what can he give us weekly or daily to remind ourselves that this is real, this is tangible, this is more than the stones in the temple. So we celebrate every Sunday that he made a meal for us to remind us that it his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed on our behalf, so that we have this hope within the veil, within the curtain that would give access to the holy place. And so I just want to invite you uh, to, uh, we're going to practice communion the way we do here, which is, um, uh, I guess Jay described it, and this is always the difficult part of the sermon for me, because I have to figure out how to make the transition from there to here. So um, uh, his body was broken, that you and I would have life, and his blood was shed to give us um, eternal life. And so we, uh, we, we come forward and we dip the bread in the cup and we share with each other the um, remembrance that he gave us better than any temple, uh, a temple fashioned in heaven. And uh, so I invite you to stand and uh, join as uh, Megan leads us.